We are in our Discovering Humanity series. Uh, in week one, Bill explained what it means to be human is really what's under attack in the world today. Uh, the fact that everywhere we turn and everything we do, it's pulling us away from what the true design of humanity is. We're designed to be together. We're designed to be in the image of God. We're designed as male and female. And we went through these things uh, week by week. So the first week was the fact that we were in the image of God. The second week was that it was marred by sin. As we fell, the world fell, and all of us fell in Adam together. So we're all broken by sin. We're created as male and female. That was a design that was beautiful. And we were created as male and female to multiply and be fruitful and fill the earth. And in the new covenant, what that means is not necessarily having kids, although it can, but it means having spiritual children so that we make disciples uh, who make disciples. And that's the idea of being fruitful and multiplying today. Then uh, we went on from there and we talked about the fact that we were created to have dominion over the earth, that we are created in God's image who has dominion and that we are set over things in dominion. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Ephesians 1 at some point, maybe today. We'll see if that comes up. Um, but Ephesians 1 talks about the fact that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, and all things are under his feet, and that we, the church, are his body. And that means that as the church, all things are under our feet. And so we have dominion over all things, with Christ as our head. Then following that, uh, last week, uh, I'm sorry, then, then we were talking about, uh, Bill talked about created to work and be creative, uh, that we have a creative God who has designed us to work and be productive, uh, and that the toil in the redeemed world is going to be taken out of that. And then Bretton shared last week about the components of body and soul that make us up, uh, and this, this idea that we are two parts that are interconnected and that God so valued the body that he in, became incarnate uh, and put on flesh and showed us what it means to walk with him. This week we're going to be covering the concept that we're created in the image of God who is in his Trinitarian nature, his three-person, Breton, his three-person headship, um, that he is love that he is love and therefore is community. Because he's a trinity, because he has three persons and one God, he is able to be other-centered even though he is one being. And that's the only way, as, as Augustine pointed out, that he can be love. Uh, because love, by nature, is other-centered, other-serving. And that's the concept of what true community is, and that we're created in that image to be in community. So we're going to follow... A basic meta narrative as the Bi the same basic meta narrative as the Bible, and that's the idea that we were created and designed. There was a fall, and then there's redemption and reconciliation, and then ultimately communion and glory. And we just sort of jump to the end by doing communion first, but that's all right. You'll get the point. <laughs> so we're going to start with Genesis 2:18, and if you had been reading through Genesis uh, and and looking at how God created the world and created, you know, started making containers and filling them, he constantly said, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And then we get to Genesis 2.18, and we should be shocked, because it says this, Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. So right there, that should be striking, because it's the first thing that God's created. The fall hasn't happened yet, and yet it's being declared as not good. It's not good that man should be alone. This falls on our Western individualistic culture 
our ears as somewhat um, peculiar. It's, it's really against what most of us are raised in. It's really against what uh, our culture celebrates in many ways. Uh, you think about our cowboy culture or individualistic culture or rustic, you know, rely on ourselves, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, that whole concept. This goes against that. And the idea that, you know, so many people, I guess, if you take a poll, there are a lot of people who think the concept of God helps those who help themselves is a biblical statement. How many people know that it's not? That was a trick question. Everyone should raise your hand. It's not. That is not a biblical statement. God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps those who recognize they need him. God helps those who recognize that they need help. And we all need that. So it's this, this idea that God helps those who help themselves is something that has been taken by our Western individualistic culture and just promoted into this place of individualism. And that's why the, it's, it's so easy for us to look at churches and look at relationships as transactional. Uh, and I'll, again, I'm jumping ahead of myself, but the idea of transactional relationship versus covenantal relationship, a concept I'll, I'll get back to. Uh, so if you're reading that for the first time, it's shocking. It's not good. So he creates Eve, and they begin to create community together. They have community together, uh, a cohort that works together to, to then are given the command to multiply and subdue the earth. So obviously the next step, we fall, right? This isn't shocking. You guys know this story. Uh, the sin comes, we fall, and I don't have to tell you the results of that fall, do I? The results of that fall specifically on community and on relationships, because every one of us in here, I guarantee it, every one of us in here carries a wound from a relationship. Every one of us in here has been harmed by a broken relationship by fallen people. It happens. We do it to each other. We've been, had it done to us. We've done it in healthy communities, and we've made them unhealthy. We've done it in church communities. Many people in here have been wounded by the church itself, by the community that's supposed to be the nurturing safe place. And yet it's, it's caused wounding and it's caused harm. In our world today, we don't have to look far to see what community is and how it's broken and how disparate people have become. We have a digital component to things, which is really strange. And if you look at the 1990s, uh, the sociologists and, and psychologists begin to document the effects of, uh, of screens and, and TV and television programs on relationships and communities and realizing that people were creating these false communities by joining in with a distant community that is on the screen. So what I mean by that is if you look at something like um, the 1990s show, The Friends, you know, people were, were calling it friends. They were, they were saying, oh yeah, they're my friends. You know, Ross, Rachel, those, the gang, you know, we, we hang out every Thursday night. It's just what we do. And, and you, they began relating to these things and taking, uh, taking that as part of their community, all the while kind of knowing that it's a fictional community, but at the same time, you're gaining capital that you should be gaining from real community through a false community, and it's actually an empty transaction because you can't give back. There's nothing that you can pour out back to. So you're, you're taking drama and you're experiencing drama of relationship and life and difficulties that you are supposed to be walking out with each other, and you're doing it with something that's not real. Now, it doesn't mean that watching Friends is bad, Gina. I promise it's not. Um, 
It just means that it shouldn't be your community. And there were people who were looking at this idea of digital friends as their, their community. And now it's even worse, isn't it? We have devices where we have online communities, which, which is, you know, as we look at, back at last week with Breton talking and the idea of body and soul, you know, now we have a disembodied community where we never actually physically meet up and we don't really know these people, and all we're seeing is a curated version of their life. And the, the, the research on this is, I mean, it's, it's stupidly overwhelming. Like, the, the more time that you spend on online communities, the less happy you report yourself to be. I mean, it's, it's a one-to-one -one correlation, and yet we, we, we ignore it, and we continue to spend more and more time on these communities as a, as a culture. I'm not talking about you individually, I know. You've never been on Facebook, but... Um, there are people that have somewhere out there. I don't know who they are. Anyway, this concept of digital friends uh, makes, makes for actually a feeling of more isolation. Uh, and so you begin thinking that everyone else out there is having a perfect life and living well and everything's going well because you're seeing this curated version, this carefully crafted image of what their life is. And so it leads to isolation, it leads to shame, it leads to individualism, it leads to some of the highest levels of suicidal ideation that we've ever seen in our culture. That's literally what's happening right now. If you need more scientific proof, which is what some of you are saying right now, I don't believe that, but anyway, if you did, it's out there. Uh, in fact, atheistic uh, psychology, uh, Research projects are out there like crazy. Meta-analysis of data is showing, uh, you know, it's, it's all coming together to show this very thing. In fact, if you look at Psychology Today, Dr. Gary Winks uh, writes an article, and one of the things that he says is uh, looking at the COVID-19 situation where we had forced isolation on a lot of people, uh, you, you hear his quote and says this, one of the most important consequences of society's response to COVID-19 was the clear demonstration that our need for social interactions is as fundamental as our need for proper nutrition and adequate sleep. That study goes on, or that article goes on to say that studies have documented the physical changes in our cellular structures in the brain, including a significant reduction of white matter cells, critical for neural communications, an increase in the size of the amygdala, uh, and a shrinking of the prefrontal cortex. These are parts of the brain that have literally changed size, configuration, and white matter, these are cells that, that are critical for, um, for emotional responses, neural regulation, and communication among, uh, um, among your neural cells. So that concept that you literally have a physical change that occurs in your brain, which creates unhealth, should be scientific evidence for you that we are physically created as beings to be in community. And when we don't have that, our body reacts, and it reacts in a negative way. Lewis, C.S. Lewis, uh, says that at any given moment, we're helping people towards the final destination of glory or horror. And part of how he depicts hell in one of his allegories called The Great Divorce, which I recommend to you highly um, as, a, as a neat allegory, allegorical story about a a group of people who take a bus trip from hell to heaven. Um, but part of how he depicts hell is this, uh, this giant city of urban sprawl that is gray and lifeless 
and virtually empty street after street. You find one or two people on every street. And in each year that you're there, you move farther and farther out trying to get away from people and increasing isolation. In fact, one, they point to Napoleon Bonaparte and they said, uh, you know, well, where is he? And they said, well, he's, he's probably he's 1,500 years of our time walking uh, away from the center of the city. Uh, and he's in this giant house by himself where he walks from room to room muttering about who's to blame. And the idea is that when we are on a trajectory towards hell, which is isolation or away from God, that's the idea, away from God, we are in a trajectory to be alone and to be constantly looking to others to blame and to muttering and complaining and all these things. And this idea of, of being alone, is, it's, so, it's so daunting to see how many people are just trapped in this concept right now. I recently listened to another talk um, that by David Stone who referenced a, an MBA study uh, where it literally tracked the number of touches that an MBA team has on a, on a given night. So from the time that they get into the building uh, and start practice, they were literally had people observing and measuring how many times they touched each other. High fives, slaps on the back, you know, hugs, that kind of thing. And they found that when they tracked this over the course of a season, the teams that were the most successful in winning were the teams that had the most touches. We're physically designed for community. We're physically designed for touches. Okay. When I was a junior in college, uh, I met a group of people uh, that was that was really unique. It was it was uh, it was just a, a fun group. I, I started hanging out with them, and specifically a guy named Matt, um, who was he became a friend, uh, and we we were hanging out. And then I didn't think much of it, but I had a number of different groups of friends, and, and I would tend to, you know, pop between those different groups of friends, and they were really disparate. They were very um, unconnected groups. They were isolative uh, in, in their nature because they didn't, they didn't co-mingle. So, you know, if, if I wanted one group to think that I had a British accent, I could pull that off, no problem. Not that I can pull off a British accent, but anyway. Um, that, so I had these different groups, and, and so after spending a couple weeks hanging out with this, this new group of friends with Matt and the, and the, and the crew, um, I, I ended up going and hanging out with the other group of friends for a little while. And I ran into Matt on campus, and, and he looked at me, and he asked me a question. And he said, where have you been? And looking back at it now, although I'm not sure I would give 19-year-old Matt the credit at the time, uh, but I do believe the Spirit used him, that, that question of where have you been was an echo of the question that God asks in Genesis 3 of Adam. Where are you? It's not a geographical question. God, and it's not, God knew the answer. He knows where Adam was. But the question is, where's your heart? Where's your affections? Where are you turning? And he recognized why, you know, the, the, the question of, really, why are you hiding? That's really the question that Matt was asking. Because he realized that in that moment, and again, whether it was through the Spirit working through him, or Matt was really that wise at the time. He is now. I'll give him credit for that. He is definitely that wise now. But at the time, that question of why are you hiding was a legitimate question because the, the, the truth was we were starting to get close and I, as a group, uh, and I had begun sharing some, some struggles and some feelings with them, and then I pretty much left and, and hid. And as it turns out, when, when he asked me that question, it caused me to stop and reflect. 
And over the next couple weeks and months, I began to realize that this was a pattern in my life that had been there for a long time, where I would have multiple groups that I would be very friendly with, but I'd only let them in so far. And then that was it. And if I, as I began to trace that back, really in preparation for this week, I began recognizing that, and, and God was sort of showing me, tracing that back to in high school when I had been really wounded by a group of friends who I had trusted and revealed myself to, and then they betrayed that trust. And I guarantee all of us have had some experience like that. And as a result, the question is, have you ever really then given yourself to community? So that question that he asked changed the course of my life because recognizing that I needed to be in a group of friends that was beyond just surface level, I began investing in them. And through that, I became really good friends with Matt. In fact, he's still my best friend to this day, even though he is a Catholic, but we love him. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, he loves Jesus very much, and there's no question of that. And by the way, if from the pulpit you have heard that um, Catholicism is, that there are no good believers in, in the Catholic Church, that is absolutely not true. Make sure that you hear the clarity that we don't, agree with their doctrine, but there are absolutely people who love Jesus and are saved that are in the Catholic Church. So please hear that. Um, but we, uh, <laughs> through knowing Matt and through being in that community, it ended up creating a really tight community, one that we're still involved in today. And in fact, through that community, I met my wife. And we all became close, and we shared our vulnerabilities with each other, and we shared our struggles with each other. And we began eating together and taking time to pray together. And it's not that the other groups of friends were bad by any means, and I still had other friends, but it was making sure that you're checking in with the group of covenant community that you have. And so that brings us back to this idea of covenant community. So in today's world, we have mostly transactional relationships, right? So transactional relationships are, I'm in a relationship with you as long as I'm getting something out of it and it benefits me, right? That's really how most of the relationships work, whether it's in business, and that makes sense, right? If, business, if a business relationship becomes unhealthy, you usually end that relationship. But it also happens with friends, where we have this transaction with friends, uh, and as long as you're helping me out or doing the right thing for me, then I'm going to be friends with you. But if you're going through stuff and I'm not getting a whole lot out of the relationship, then I'm, I'm going I'm to check out a little bit and, and step back. And that's a transactional relationship. What we're called to is a covenantal relationship. And with believers, we're called to have a covenantal relationship where it is based on not what they're doing, but on what God has done. And therefore, we can pour each other, pour our, ourselves out for each other over and over again. And we stand by each other with loyalty. This idea of transactional versus covenantal relationship has invaded the way that we, we look at churches. Uh, and we look at churches most often as transactional. That's why there's so much rotation around between churches. People leave one church when either they're asking questions that are uncomfortable, or somebody has said something that's offensive to you, or some other thing has happened and, and you, you simply step out of that. This is no longer benefiting me. I'm going to go find another church down the street. Or these people don't say something that, that I, you know, they're, they're, they're pressing in on me in areas that I'm not ready to change on. I'm just going to go 
slip over here where they don't know me. So just like I jumped around from friend group to friend group, we have a large population, and again, I'm not talking about anyone specifically. Don't feel condemned just by me. Um, but there are many people in our culture, in America specifically, that look at church as transactional. And if, as long as the preaching is good, and as long as uh, you know, they can get something out of it, they come in on Sunday morning, sit down, listen, and then they're out the door, and they're not investing anything in themselves. If you guys heard the scripture this morning from 1 Corinthians 12, we are a body, and we're many parts, and we're many members. And the idea that you can come in, listen to a sermon, and then leave isn't cohesive with the idea that you're a member of the body of Christ in a covenant community. It doesn't work. Because if you're a pinky, we still need you. If you're a hand, we really need you. If you're an eye, an ear, a foot, we need you. So the idea that, that you can just come in, get something, and then leave is like saying, I can take my left arm, put it on for Sunday morning, and walk around for a little bit, and then take it off and leave it somewhere for the week. And it doesn't work. It means I'm, I, as the rest of the body, am missing something for the whole week. So that idea of we're a body, that we're supposed to be together, is is something that we're missing a lot of. And I just want you to recognize that as we look at this next scripture. Uh, and we're going to look at Luke 5. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and pull it out, because uh, I'm going to spend just a minute reading this. And we're going to look at Luke 5, uh, and this is the story of the paralytic. So this should be familiar to most of you, but if you haven't heard it, dial in. On one of those days, as he was teaching... Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea, and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof, and they led him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Well, the main point of this, for most people, and, and it's true, is that Jesus is God and he can forgive sins. And forgiveness of your sins is, in fact, your main need in life. It is the main miracle that you need. You need a new heart. It is resurrection. Every other healing, every other miracle that can occur is really just temporary because our body will die on this, in this life until we're resurrected with a new body. And so the idea that, that he is forgiving the sins, that really is what the man needed. Now the paralytic may have been coming hoping for something else at first, but I guarantee 
when Jesus looked at him and said, son, your sins are forgiven, that that was something that he realized in that moment, that is what I need. And I would imagine that his face probably reflected that, but he didn't stop there, and he kept going, and he healed. Now, I want to focus for just a minute on something that's not often talked about with that parable, and that is these four dudes that carried his bed. This is a crazy crew, right? This is a group of four guys who decide, I'm going to pick up this guy's bed, carry it, who knows how far, to find Jesus in the hopes that he would be healed. Now, there's more to it than this, and I've been involved in some capers in my life, so there's probably some planning that went into it, but it was probably some crazy guy like Matt, uh, my friend Matt, who would say, hey, let's, let's do this. And then the rest of us are like, all right. And so we, we jump in, and we carry the bed, and then we're just, we're just going to walk in and, and, and take him right to Jesus. That's the plan. You know, the roof wasn't plan A, right? <laughs> so they get there, and this crowd is crazy. It's all pressed in. It's too crowded to get in. They're trying to carry this, this bed in. They're trying to press past people, and, the, and they can't get in. And so somebody says, well, let's just go up on the roof and tear through it. And they get up there, and they realize, wait a minute, this house is actually pretty well built. There's tiles on the roof. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. This is some work here. we got to take up tiles, probably read layers underneath that. There's probably debris falling in. There could be the risk of collapsing the roof. I mean, everything that's happening here is, is, a, is a pretty big deal. And these four guys are like, hey, we're going for it. We're, going, we're all in for this guy. We want to get this guy before Jesus. They didn't have anything in it for themselves. They were doing it to serve this guy. And this is really, to me, one of the pictures that I want to focus on this morning, that we, as the church, as believers, that is our commission, is to, to first try to bring people with a pair, you know, with another group. Remember, Jesus never sent disciples out by themselves. He always sent them out in pairs. So we're working with somebody else. We need to grab somebody else in here and say, hey, I'm praying for this guy. Would you pray with me? I'm talking to this guy. You want to come along with me and talk to him? Because two people are more effective than one. We're going to hear that in Ecclesiastes. If you look at the scripture of Ecclesiastes uh, 4, 9 through 12, two are better than one because they have good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and doesn't have another to lift him up. And again, if two lie down together, they can keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him, and a threefold cord is not easily broken. The idea that sometimes two is not enough. We need more. And the idea of a threefold uh, or three-strand cord simply talks about a multiple of people being stronger than one or two. Spurgeon, uh, who's a, a great preacher from the uh, early 1800s, I guess, uh, said this, It may sometime happen that a man has heard Paul preach, but his clear doctrine, though it enlightened his intellect, has not yet convinced his conscience. He has heard Apollos, these are all people from the New Testament, by the way, and the glow of the orator's eloquent appeals has warmed his heart, but not humbled his pride. He has later still listened to Cephas, many of you know him as Peter, uh, whose rough cunning sentences have hewn him down and convinced him of his sin. But ere he can find joy and peace in believing, he will require to hear the sweet affectionate words of John. And only when the fourth shall grasp the bed 
and give a hearty lift with the paralyzed person he, laid in, he is then laid in mercy's path. We often need to recruit other people in our body to meet needs in people that haven't met Jesus yet in ways that we can't do it. So we need people that are different than us. We need to be a, a, just a body of Christ, very different from each other. I need Ryan Pittman's bluntness. I need his ability to speak truth. We need Eddie's wisdom and compassion. We need Rick's quiet, steadfast questions. We need the different parts of our body to speak and to be a community, both for ourselves and to be able to reach the world. So don't sell yourself short by saying, I'm just going to come to church on a Sunday and then split out the door before anyone gets to know me. We need you. We need you. And this idea that we can be a group of four working together to bring somebody in, or a group of, you know, however many, working to bring something in, God doesn't need us to do that, right? But he chooses to use us. He chooses to use the broken and foolish things of this world that his glory might be made known. He also chooses to use us so that we can participate in the joy. How many people have watched one of those... Um, those homecoming videos where the soldier comes home and surprises the family. Anybody seen one of those? Come on. Thank you. Three of you have. Okay. All right. Yeah. Good. Yes. We've all seen it. And has it made an emotional response in you? If it hasn't, then you're dead inside. No, <laughs> of course it has. It's great. Like it, and, and we're warmed by that. But let me ask you a question. How much more warmed would you be if that happened right now in our midst? That'd be really cool. Like you'd be even more moved by actually seeing it in person. How much more would you be moved if you were the one who organized it, who had the opportunity to arrange it and to call the guy and be like, hey, come on in at this time. It's, we're going to make this happen. Like how much more joy would you have by participating in it? And that's where God allows us to work. That's, that's, that is God saying, hey, I'm going to allow you to take part in this so that you can understand just an inkling of the joy of what it is to welcome another sinner into heaven, to welcome another saint in. The joy that God gets from one person coming in, we get an inkling of that by being a participant in that process. But that is as far as we can take it sometimes. Sometimes all we can do, just like the four guys, all they could do is put the person in the path of Christ. It's not up to us to save them. It's not up to us to force their heart to surrender. It's just us, up to us to bring them to Christ and let Jesus do the work. I want to close with just a couple quick things. One, um, C.S. Lewis, again, in his book, The Four Loves, talks about the risk of love. That there is no place without risk of hurting. There is no place that you can put your heart without risk of hurting. He quotes it this way. He said, there is no safe investment. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, and airless, it will change. It will not be broken. 
it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative, to the alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of hell, I'm sorry, of love, is hell. If we take the wounds that each one of us has experienced, and we let that allow us to build walls so that no one really knows us, we're not headed for community with God. We're headed in a different direction. We're headed for isolation, and we're headed for rejection of both his body, and ultimately, if you reject the body of Christ, you ultimately reject his head. Because Christ is not separate from the body. And God has chosen to use broken, frail communities to be able to redeem us and to lift us up. This isn't a foreign concept, I know. I want to ask a couple quick questions. Where are you holding back from seeking the opportunity to be a fully participating part of the body of Christ? Where have you shown people a curated version of your life where everything is fine and lovely so that they don't think less of you? Where have you caused wounding or division in the body of Christ for which you need to seek reconciliation? Remember Matthew 5 says, if you find that you're giving a gift and you think that you're, you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar. Go, get reconciliation, and then come back. Folks, if, if you have left another church and you've done it poorly and you need to ask for forgiveness, I just want you to right now in your mind make a resolve to go back, not to necessarily go back and be a member there, but to go back and just ask for forgiveness for the way that you left. Because like Matt, as I left that group of friends, there's a loss there. And although you may not feel it, and although in, in our transactional culture, sometimes people don't even notice when you come and go. There is a way to leave and to change communities that is healthy, and there's a way that's unhealthy. If you are holding bitterness and resentment in your heart, you have to let it go. You have to ask for forgiveness. You have to forgive. Unforgiveness is a cancer that will tear you apart. That's why we're commanded to forgive. Where have you looked at part of Christ's body and thought less of them? Have you looked around and you thought, they're not really needed here? Or, I'm a better Christian than they are. You're disparaging part of the body of Christ. Maybe you're feeling healthy. Well, where are you able to be one of the four who shares the load of bringing people to Christ, of carrying a paralytic to Christ? Did the Spirit bring someone specifically to your mind when I was talking? Somebody that you could pray for, look out for? Look around. Look around and say, who can I bring with me to go and minister to this person? Or maybe this morning you are the paralytic and you feel completely helpless to come to the feet of Jesus. Maybe you're the one that needs to be carried this morning. How brave are you feeling? If you're feeling really brave and you're ready to know Jesus, or you're ready to be carried for prayer or for any other reason, raise your hand. And then I want people to look around you to look 
and to see that this person needs to be brought forward for prayer. Are you feeling brave? At the end of the service, I'm gonna, I want to spend a little bit of time, and I want you to, if you feel like you need prayer for anything, or you just want to pray, we're going to be up here praying every Sunday, regardless of if you have a need, or if we're just going to be praying for the church. So each Sunday, we're going to be up here praying, and if you do have a need, please come forward. If you just want to join us and pray, and pray for our community, pray for our church body, come forward. If you need somebody to walk with you, I want you to look to the person next to you or around you and say, hey, will you come up with me? Will you help bring me to Christ and have my needs met by Christ this morning? As I close, and this is where we were going to do communion. It was going to be really cool, by the way. I'm just kidding. Um, as I close, I want the, uh, the, the prayer team to come down, any, any of the elders, elders' wives, to come down and be ready to pray. Um, and the worship team can come on up. Um, but I want you guys to just take a minute and begin thinking through the list of people and the interactions that you have each week. Think about your DGs. We had Dean up here a few weeks ago just sharing about Eddie and Mallory's DG and, and how much it has meant to them, how much it has changed and transformed them. Let me throw all that stuff off. How much it has changed and transformed them. And... I want you to realize that you need to be a part of the community like that, that challenges you, that moves you through, that answers questions for you, that helps minister to your needs. And then as a body, I want you to begin thinking, where am I gifted? Because without people like Linda Haney who serve selflessly each week and be, do set up, and without people like Diane who pray and have a passion to gather people, and without these people as a community together, we can't be a healthy body. So where are you gifted in that community, and how can you plug yourself in? That's a question I want you to begin praying about and thinking about. And then right now, if you're ready to pray, come forward, and we're here. Let me pray for us right now. Jesus, we just thank you. I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you are a perfect community. I thank you, Lord, that you call us in Father, I know that I touched on nerves this morning. I know that there are wounds that are so deep that there are people in their seats right now saying, David, you don't understand. You don't understand. I can't be known. I'm afraid to be known. There are people who joke about not wanting to be spend too much time with people because they know they just feel deep down inside that they get to know me, they're not going to like me. Father, we praise you that you know us all the way to the bottom, and you love us, Lord, all the way to the top. And Lord, that you choose to use broken, wounded people to love broken, wounded people. And how ironic that the very thing that causes our wounding, relationships with broken people, you also choose to all create our healing and to be the very medicine that we need. The medicine that provides laughter and joy. The one that says, hey, come with me. I want you to meet this guy named Jesus. The one that says, hey, what you're thinking right now is a lie. And you 
to listen to the word of truth. Thank you, Lord, that yours are the words of truth and that there are no others. I pray, Father, that we as a community would be quick to bring people to Christ for healing, for forgiveness. And Lord, that we would be the hands and feet that would bind up the wounds of the brokenhearted through you. In Jesus' name, amen.